Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese. Every fortnight, we post interviews with philosophers about their ideas as elaborated in their newly published books. Today's interview is with Alva Noe, professor of philosophy at the University of California at Berkeley, about his new book, Varieties of Presence, just released from Harvard University Press. What do we experience when we look at an object, say a tomato? A traditional view holds that we have or entertain an internal picture or representation of the tomato, and moreover that this internal picture is of the surface of the tomato, what's in our visual field. It does not include, for example, the side of the tomato that is hidden from view. This general view of experience has been critically scrutinized for some time by numerous scientists and philosophers, knowing among them. In earlier books, Noe has defended the idea that our experiences of the world are grounded in practical knowledge of how things can be manipulated, how they're available to us for use, and how skilled we are in using them. According to his inactive view of perception, Noe argues that the hidden side of the tomato, for example, is is also in our experience of it. It is, in his words, present as absent. In his new book, Noe elaborates further on the inactive view to explain the nature of presence and the nature of access, of how the world shows up to us in experience, and how the way it shows up depends upon our modes of access to it. Let's turn to the interview. Hi, Alva. Hello. Hi, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, um, I'm really excited to talk about uh, your new book, Varieties of Presence. Um, and this this book, um, as many of our listeners will will recognize, you know, follows two other books that you've written along the same topic of you know generally um, the nature of experience of conscious experience. Um, the first being Action and Perception, which appeared in 2004, and then um, Out of Our Heads, uh, which appeared in 2009. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's a interest of yours that traces back for, for a long time. Um, so maybe you could start us off by giving us some background on um, sort of a, generally on how you came to write this book, how you came to philosophy perhaps, and then how you um, came to focus your philosophical interests in this particular area of philosophy. That's a great question. Thank, thank you. Um, well, Action and Perception was my first book, and I published it, you know, um, about um, almost 10 years after, after graduate school, after finishing my PhD in 1995. Um, my PhD was also on perception. But when I left graduate school, I got very interested in cognitive science. I, I've been interested in it in a sort of a vague way, but... Um, I sort of started to get interested in cognitive science around the time when it was becoming more common for, for academic philosophers, for people who are really part of a philosophical community, to realize that um, 
uh, a kind of a, a dialogue on equal footing uh, with people working in, in psychology labs and neuroscience labs and robotics labs could be really a fruitful, fruitful way to go forward. So my first job was actually a postdoc in Dan Dennett's Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts University. And in a way, I mean, that year was just a, a crash course in what was going on in contemporary cognitive science. And it was, it was very inspiring. And I, I made a lot of um, sort of friends in the sort of philosophy slash cognitive science community there and almost had a whole sort of second, like a second PhD, uh, like a practical PhD. I guess that's what a postdoc is really supposed to be. Um, in any case, um, I came into that year convinced that um, action was in some fundamental way primary for understanding the human mind. But, but I didn't yet really know exactly how to move forward. There was one major figure in, in American psychology or in the history of cognitive science, J.J. Gibson, who'd sort of right. developed, developed this idea. But, but I was really kind of um, moving forward on my own and not quite sure how best, how best to move forward. Um, to make a long story short, I, I started a series of collaborations with, um, with the psychologist Kevin O'Regan and with um, the philosopher Evan Thompson uh, and with, with Dennett himself. And, and um, I developed a, a view which um, in action and perception I called the inactive view um, using a term that um, Francisco Varela had used um, where, where I argued that perceiving really needed to be understood as, as a kind of activity um, and that this distinction between perception as something that happens sort of inside us and action as something that happens outside of us is, is problematic. And um, the book Action in Perception is a sort of systematic development of this idea arguing that the quality and content of perceptual states um, can be understood in this way and moreover that this has big implications uh, for how we think about ourselves and, and what we are. I didn't really um, fully follow those up in the book. Um, and my second book was, was, um, was really a follow-up on, on those implications for thinking about sort of the nature of the human being and the nature of, of the organism. Um, the, the second book is called Out of Our Heads, and the subtitle is Why You Are Not Your Brain and Other Lessons from the Biology of Consciousness. And so what I really tried to argue is that there were good reasons, philosophical reasons, but also empirical reasons for rejecting a certain kind of brain reductionism. If, if we want to understand perception, if we want to understand consciousness, we really need to look at the active life of a living animal as it's situated in an environment and as it's situated in an environment that includes other people. And so that book... Um, has a kind of a negative argument that um, attempts to find consciousness in the brain will fail. Looking for consciousness in the brain, I argued, was kind of like looking for the value of money on the paper it's printed on. It's just the wrong place to look. You need to expand and increase our conception of uh, the terms in which we want to explain consciousness uh, in order to come up with a better explanation. And we need to include the non-brain world, the body, and our dynamic interactions with the environment. Um, and so that, that, was, that was the topic of that book. It was very much an engagement with, with uh, neuroscience. But it also had a positive, a positive view, which I guess I've already stated. It's this sort of dynamic world-involving view. Um, interestingly, I wrote that book um, deliberately trying to reach a, a, um, a non-philosophy specialist audience. I wrote it with um, people who were interested in the question and who may be educated and motivated to really take a stand on the issues, but who were not necessarily part of a philosophical community or even really part of a, of an established cognitive science community. I wanted, you know, people in, in 
business and people in um, different far-flung fields of of, uh, of you know medicine and neurology and cognitive science to be able to to get into these issues. Sadly, one consequence of that is that it's been a little bit neglected in the philosophical community, um, but it's but it is a widely widely read book and and uh, that was really important. So if you think of to me, I mean, if you think of um, if you think of action and perception as sort of laying the floor, so out of our heads was sort of one one fulfillment of the of the aims of action and perception, but there was a second issue that arose in, in action and perception, which um, uh, was a whole set of issues about the nature of what I call presence, which I'm sure we can we can we can talk about. Yeah. Um, and and varieties of presence sort of started out life as uh, as um, papers that I wrote engaging with issues that were arising out of the more philosophical aspects of action and perception right. um, is really an attempt to, to deal with this, with this other, other side of the issues. So I sort of think of action and perception as like the, the parent node uh-huh. and, and these two books as sort of sister nodes exploring different, different ways of developing the project in action and perception. And I, I've now got a very different project. So, um, uh, so I mean, that's a good uh, segue into the, my first question about the about the book itself. Is is this phenomenon of, of presence? Um, you describe it as um, how the world shows up to us, um, and also as the basic phenomenon in the domain of the mental, and and also as as what is at stake in disputes over intentionality, and what's at heart in the problem of consciousness. So, um, could you first start us off by saying a word about what what you mean by presence well presence really has has um, two aspects um, and I try to use ordinary language non technical language to characterize it but I end up then using that ordinary language in a fairly nuanced and technical sounding way um, but my but but the, the first the first of the thought is that um, the world itself other people, things, tables, chairs, the ground we're sitting on, standing on, the air around us, the sounds we hear, that all of this enjoys a certain presence in our, in our, um, in our thought, in our perceptual experience, in our imagination. Um, and that's what I mean by saying it shows up for us. Uh, we have a sense of its presence to us. You know, it, you know, the sound of my voice to the listeners of this broadcast, the floor under our feet, um, these things are there for us, they show up, and that's the the first fundamental aspect of, of what I call presence. And the second aspect of presence is that um, uh, we show up. You know, here we are, here you are, Carrie, here I am, um, in this place, in this environment, situated in this world. Um, and it seems to me that presence, in a way, is the is the sort of most all encompassing, and and sort of intuitively plausible view, um, phenomenon for really capturing the basic of our men- the basic uh, features of our mental lives. So this is a book about, and, and in a way the main idea of the book, you know, very simply put, is that um, presence isn't something that, that comes for free. It's not something that's sort of automatic or given. It's something that we actually achieve. 
So, yeah, you disc- you you analyze presence or or explain it in in terms of uh, what you call availability or or accessibility, and that and that the character of of presence um, is determined by uh, by as you put it, what we do to bring the world to hand. Um, so maybe maybe you could say something about about that about the differences in accessibility and how that affects uh, yeah. our presence. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cherry. That's you're obviously a really careful reader of the book. Um, that's right. Um, my thought is that um, um, many of the many of the puzzles that we face about presence have to do with the fact that we've tried to analyze it, and when I say we, I mean really the great philosophical tradition that most of us are practicing within, or cognitive science, which in many ways is really just a footnote to that great philosophical tradition. Um, namely, we tend to think of presence as a matter of represence or representation. It's about uh, it's something that happens in the head. So most most um, most writings in this on this topic, whether they call it this or or whether they call it something else. Um, are committed to sort of a, a family of isms. They're committed to internalism. Uh, after all, these representations are built up in our in our in our brains or in our minds. They're they're committed uh, usually to a sort of intellectualism. The idea that the main work of the cognitive system is to compute or calculate or hypothesize or in some sense generate a model of what's going on around us on the basis of what reaches our sensory surfaces. The view tends to be. Um, individualistic. Um, we, tell a, we tell a story about how this happens that really depends just on what's going on inside each of us. Each of us, in a sense, is, is the locus of the generation of our, own, of our own experience, of our own sense of the world around us. So um, I've, I've argued in this book and, and elsewhere that, that the representationalism, the internalism, the intellectualism, and the individualism are all kind of problematic. And, and don't don't work. Um, I'll just give a, a sort of example. Take a simple visual case. Um, you know what what shows up from visual experience. And and again, I'm speaking in, in very general terms, but I think um, these will suffice to make the point. Um, the the traditional view, and, and and the traditional view is alive and well all around us. The traditional view is that well, the world projects to the retina, and then. The seeing happens in the brain. The brain builds up a, a picture, a representation, a model of the world around us. So what, what I would suggest is um, that we, we notice two interesting, interesting things. Um, the first is that in the visual domain, we experience much more than projects to the eyes. And that might sound kind of strange, but if you actually stop to reflect on what seeing is like, it, it becomes clear that, for example, when we see things, we see their hidden parts. Or not exactly see their hidden parts because they're hidden, but we have a visual sense of their presence. We have a sense of their presence in the visual modality. For example, to use an example that, like many philosophers, I've used a lot, you, know, you look at a, a tomato and you have a visual sense of the presence of the parts of the tomato that you can't see, the back of the tomato. Or you look at a room that's full of clutter and detail, and for example, maybe many people. Um, and while it's obvious that you don't simultaneously look at every little element of the of the detail, you don't simultaneously focus on everything. Some things are in the center of attention, and some are uh, in the background, and some are on the periphery, and some are maybe not even noticed at all. Nevertheless, you have right now when you're looking, 
you have a sense of the presence of all of it. Um, you have a sense of, it's not as though there are gaps in your visual field. You have a, you have this rich sense of, of it all. So, um, or to even give a, a more, a more sort of interesting, profound example, when you look at another person, um, for example, um, quite beyond the fact that the person doesn't show up just as a mere surface, they usually show up precisely as a person. It's not just as a physical thing, but as a person, and maybe even as, you know, as a woman, or maybe even as a police officer. So, and, and of course, police officerhood is not something that strikes the retina. Uh, so, so my thought is that we experience much more, we experience the presence in vision of much more than projects into the eyes. Um, and then the second point is that not only do we experience more than what projects to the eyes, we don't experience everything that projects into the eyes. So um, we can fail to notice all sorts of things going on around us, even though they're perfectly in view and even though they're perfectly interesting, relevant, and important to us. And one domain where this has been very closely studied by psychologists is regarding the phenomenon of change blindness. Um, in change blindness, um, if there's a distractor, when a change occurs, very often we won't notice the change. And it's astonishing. People are usually flabbergasted that they failed to notice, um, you know, a change in who they were talking to right. uh, when they were distracted. Actually, I'm, in, in that example, I'm slightly assimilating change blindness and inattentional blindness, which are, which are right. very interestingly different phenomena. But for my present purpose, it, it, it doesn't matter. My, my point is... Um, and, and I, forgive me, please, if I'm giving too long-winded answers to your questions, but my, my, my point is that um, I would argue that actually projecting into the retina is neither necessary nor sufficient for showing up in our visual consciousness, for being visually present. So I believe that we need really a very, very radically new way of thinking about what presence to vision is than representation in the brain as a result of projection into the eyes. And... And, and, and the proposal that I make is that presence, and I, and I need to say this before, before you stop me, mm-hmm. is that presence is availability. And so the, that then applies to these examples. So right now, it's true the back of the tomato is out of view. But right now, I stand, given that the, the tomato is in front of me, in a relationship to the back of the tomato such that by simple movements I can bring it into view. And what I, and similarly to the cluttered environment, I may be looking at the person right in front of me, but right now I have a sense of the presence of the person on the periphery of my visual field, and I think that consists precisely in the fact that I right now have access to that person at the periphery of the visual field. Now, this is a really... This is meant to be an idea which is not just offered as a kind of um, as a kind of uh, sort of brute hypothesis. Mm-hmm. The, the The claim is meant to have phenomenological plausibility to it. Uh, and so, what I what I argue in Variety's presence is that really, you know, if you reflect on it, if you sort of do the phenomenology, if you, what we can appreciate is that really the basic modality of the world's presence in consciousness, whether in vision, whether in hearing, whether in thought, um, the basic modality of the world's presence is its availability. Um, and, the dif- and then two, the many different ways in which 
the world shows up in our experience. For example, it's different for it to show up in hearing and for it to show up in sight. It's different to see something and different to think about something. Um, that those differences correspond essentially to the um, different ways in which access is or would be achieved. Well, let me let me just press on the on the uh, anti-representationalist um, aspect of this. You know, sort of the negative claim there, um, because it was it wasn't clear to me when I was when I was reading the book how uh, how anti-representationalist it needed to be. Um, so, for example. Uh, Clearly, I mean, it would it would seem that you know something is being uh, stored. I, I mean, I'll just use that as a as a hopefully neutral term um, from previous experiences with with tomatoes and so forth um, in terms of our manipulation of them, our 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 uh, access to them f- through various um, sensory modalities, um, and that information uh, is being utilized in my current experience uh, of the tomato, and um, it would seem that that is uh, it, it would seem consistent with with your with your claims that 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 information from past experience um, is somehow you know part of our current experience but it's also something that is you know in some sense um, in the head uh, do you would you find that sort of a, a um, explanation or or response uh, you know entirely against your project no that's very very acute. Uh, observation to make. Um, <coughs> let me try to see if I can satisfy you um, and, and clarify the position. Um, you know, the view is not that we're just empty heads. We're like you know, like we're <laughs> right. like, like an empty garbage can. I mean, it's an empty garbage can with these magical powers. Um, no, it's it's it is a view that that uh, appeals in all sorts of ways to knowledge and to the role that knowledge plays in in, in our in our lives. One of the, one of the one of the points about uh, the idea that perception perceptual presence is a matter of access is that, as was already implicit in what I said. The, the basis of access, its very foundation, is, uh, is the possession and exercise of skill, uh, uh, or of, of, of the ability, for instance, to, of, of the knowledge that, of both, of both the ability to move one's body in relation to the environment so as to see more, but also one's implicit understanding that one has that, that ability. Um, so both of those kinds of, of sort of first and second order knowledge play a very important, um, role in the view. Now, if there's some technical questions we could go into. I said first order knowledge, second order knowledge. Is it really two orders of knowledge? Um, is, is skill, do we, do we, can by some suitable notion of, an, of implicit practical understanding, can we, can we flatten that? But in any case, there's clearly, it's clearly important that the perceiver has the kind of know-how, or if you like, the kind of knowledge, or the kind of skill, or the kind of practical ability, or the kind of understanding that enables them to achieve access, and that that's necessary for perceptual consciousness. Um, and if you want to say that that's, if you want to call that represented, I, I don't quibble with that. Um, um, but there's a number of further, and I, and I, and that even seems seems important. Um, but there's there's some important points to be made about that. The first is um, 
what that what that what that knowledge and what that skill and what that access, what that knowledge, that skill, call it call it what you want to call it, is doing, mm-hmm. in my view, its function yeah. for for the system, for the organism, for the conscious being, is to enable access. Uh, they are skills of access. Um, they are abilities to to do something. Like you can think of them metaphorically as like calipers with which we can literally pick something up that you couldn't pick up without the calipers because maybe it was too far away or too hot to touch. So so these are literally giving us ways of latching onto things. They are not themselves representations of that which they are, if you like, used to make contact with. And what we experience are not representations in our head. What we experience are the things around us that we can achieve contact with thanks to these capacities that we have. So if you want to say that the capacities are represented, fine. But what's important is that the world is not represented. Um, and we don't need to think of ourselves as, as, um, as the traditional view does, um, generating a kind of a model. And then it's the model that is the content of what we see and what we experience. Now, there's one other point I'd like to make. Um, which is directly relevant, um, and that is that um, you quite rightly point out that our perceptual experience of tomatoes in part depends on our knowledge of what tomatoes are, presumably our past experience of tomatoes. Um, um, and you might think of the, of the therefore, that the, the concept tomato is entering into, into this achievement of perceptual contact with tomatoes. And I think there's, I I have two, two things I want to say about that. The first is that, um, I think that the visual sense of the presence of a tomato in one's environment outstrips what can be explained just by appeal to the knowledge that there is a tomato there or to the application of the tomato concept or the belief that there is a tomato there. Um, that is, the belief will give you, the, the concept will give you something like the cognitive thought that there's a tomato there, but there's a distinct qualitative visual character to the way in which even the unseen occluded portions of the tomato show up that I think need to be explained by reference to much more low-grained, uh, not really conceptual, sensory motor skills, like a, like a real understanding about how movements of one's body would change one's relationship and give rise to new to new sensory information. So that um, I, while while I do think that the conceptual role is important, I don't think it is alone sufficient to explain the, the visual qualities that we're interested in, in understanding. That's the first point about about this appeal to the tomato concept. And then the second point is that, as I argue um, in in um, in the new book, in ways that kind of go beyond what I what I said in action and perception. Um, I want to say that there's no sharp or principled division between the conceptual and the merely sensory motor, or to put it differently, that actually, that actually is something I said in actual perception, but to put it differently in a way I didn't put it there, that there really is not a fundamental difference between sort of perception and thought, that is the, the, the distinction between perception and thought breaks down, they're just different ways, that is, they're ways of exploring the environment, deploying different kinds of skills of access, sometimes conceptual, sometimes more bodily sensory motor. 
So w- would it be correct? Um, I mean, what are the, one of the ideas that, that came to me as I was reading was that this was, um, in, in an odd way, uh, a, a very intellectual, um, uh, intellectualist view, um, because of the reliance on, on understanding, uh, in order, in order to explain, uh, experience. Um, one of the yes. things, yeah. So, yes. I mean, let me just stop you right but, there. But, but then please, you. Yeah. So, 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 one of the things that I thought was, well, I mean, you. Okay, so here's a very, very crude way of of thinking of it. You, you, you might think of experience in terms of some sort of understanding, uh, which seems like an intellectual move. But then, understanding itself is interpreted in terms of you know actual you know skill and manipulating things. So it 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 seems to go inward, but it goes back outward again. Yeah, that's exactly right. You've understood the view perfectly. Um, I, I would. I would reject the view. I would, I would reject the epithet intellectualist. <laughs> although maybe that would just be, maybe it would just, it's just wordplay. Maybe in the right context, I should, I should warmly embrace that. In, in action of perception, I, I think of the view, I, I describe the view as, as Kantian. Uh, you know, intuitions about concepts are blind. Um, and, um, I view myself very much as resisting a kind of empiricism that thinks we have we have experiences that are sort of pre-understanding or pre-conceptual in terms of which we first frame our initial concepts. Instead I, I offer the, 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 the metaphor that we you know that understanding and, and and perception arrive at the party together and they work hand in hand to enable us to bring the world into focus for perception and consciousness. But to directly meet your um your point, um, I think that the big problem with the way people have tended to thought about the intellect, or at least many people think about it, is as um, um, sort of sublimated and hyper-intellectualized. Um, so one of the chapters of Varieties of Presence is, is on over-intellectualizing the intellect. And, and what, I, what, I would, what I want to say is that once you realize that the intellect itself is a domain of skill. The intellect itself is a domain of expertise. The intellect itself is a is um, a domain of, of a practical involvement with the world. That the recognition that our experiential lives are saturated with exercises of the intellect is isn't threatening. I mean, here there's sort of there's two different foes. On the one hand, you have a kind of I don't know. Let's call him. Let's call this philosopher a Phrygian, who who thinks that the only application of a concept is in a certain kind of judgment, mm-hmm. which is explicit and there's strict criteria for whether it applies or not. Um, so 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 for this for this philosopher, to say that experience is conceptual really is to make it seem rigidly um, deliberative and intellectual. Um, and I think actually many cognitive scientists do have sort of that view of what a concept is. Um, and then on the other hand. You've got people who completely, because of that way of thinking about what concepts are, completely reject that concepts can play any role. And here I'm thinking sort of especially of people um, influenced by by Heidegger and and, uh, um, Bert Dreyfus's interpretation of Heidegger and and, um, existential phenomenology, who are really interested in arguing, know that there's a kind of uh, preconceptual, grounded in habit, 
automatistic involvement that we have with the world around us. Um, and, and, and there's just no place for concepts there. Any application of concepts or reasons in making sense of what people do when they're, when they're in their engaged mode of involvement with the world falsely intellectualizes it. And to them I say, no, you only, you only say that because you're taking for granted this hyper-intellectualized view of the intellect that your foe has endorsed. Once you realize that the, the intellect itself is a, is a domain of, of involvement and practical engagement, you don't, you don't need to, um, to say that. So, one of yes, yes. please. No, uh, no, go ahead if you if you, to, to finish. Well, I just wanted to say that I said before that I thought, in some sense, the breakdown is that my view allows for a certain kind of breakdown uh, between the cleavage of thought and perception. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think sometimes it makes sense to think of thought as a kind of extended perception, and sometimes it makes sense to think of perceiving something as a way of thinking about it. But the differences are always going to be. Um, real, but matters of degree. That is, the differences need to be described in relation to repertoires of skills that we have um, that are that are always potentially in play. So, you know, if you're an empiricist, you think that perception has this fundamental role. It's you know, we start with that, and then then you know, thought is the thing that comes later. Um, if you're if you're a sort of an idealist, you think it's all really just a matter of of uh, thinking and concepts and experience. You know, can never give you anything you haven't already thought. And and what what I want to suggest is that um, really the fundamental the fundamental category for approaching the mind is the achievement of of our presence in the world's presence. It's a matter of therefore on my analysis a matter of access. And from that point of view, um, the distinction between between perception and thought just become two different modalities of achieving access to the world that are different, but also have in common this basic formal feature that they are ways of achieving access to the world. Um, and they differ from each other in the same sort of way that hearing and touch differ from each other, that is, as modalities, not as somehow fundamentally different modes of, of cognition. Well, um, I mean, there's all that has raised a number of different different questions. I'm not sure which to to continue with first, but um, let me just ask something about what what you just ended with with this idea of the distinct modalities. Uh, another thought that came to me as as I was reading was um, uh, was the idea that um, maybe one of the problems um, that we have in thinking about uh, experience or the mind cognition perception is is this idea that that there are distinct modalities um, so to, to give the example of the of the tomato um, according to you our experience our conscious experience of the tomato um, includes the parts of the tomato that are actually you know hidden from retinal access so to speak um, but they're accessible um, uh, in you know, in some other modality, touch or or uh, smell or something like that, um, and that those aspects are also part of our experience. But a way a way to sort of say that is just just to say that you know what we call visual experience isn't ever purely visual. It, it, that all all of our modalities, or at least two or three, or, are are involved in every experience. Um, and that, and that, what's artificially distinguished are the modalities, the sense modalities, um, rather than certain, say, offline cognitive acts versus skillful, you know, interaction with the world. Yeah, gosh, that's such a beautiful, a beautiful question, and it, it, 
it can be answered in so many different ways because it's such a big topic. I mean, my first my first thought is a slightly is 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 to sort of is to you know um, kickstand and say, well, actually, um, I think you know there's all the difference in the world between seeing the color of the surface and touching the the surface, um, and these are are fundamental distinctions in the taxonomy of human perceptual consciousness and and they need to be explained i mean you know feeling a surface is different from seeing its color and one of the interesting facts that has led me to the work that i'm doing is that if you look at a chunk of brain tissue from the somatosensory cortex and look at a chunk of brain tissue from the visual cortex, you're going to be hard-pressed to find any difference between them. And if you look at them functioning, you're going to be hard-pressed to find anything that looks like a difference that would explain how those differences in experience are so great, uh, just in terms of those neural states. Therefore, I argue, you need to look, look not at what's going on just in the brain alone, but look at the way in which what's going on in the brain alone is, um, is yoked to a dynamic of interaction with the environment. Now, uh, so, so there, I really think that this kind of actionist, inactive, sensory motor approach that I'm trying to develop really wants to explain a, a genuine and non-gainsayable fact about human consciousness. You know that there are modal differences. Now, having said that, um, I start to think that there is a profound sense in which you may be right that talk about individual modalities is, is a huge abstraction. So I talked about color and texture, but, you know, but once you start to notice that most perception isn't standing back looking at something and meditating on the character of your scene, but is rather you know, engaged, active doing things, uh, all our senses are, are active, um, and they are not active by giving you little atoms of consciousness, but we are sort of using them as we engage with the world. And it may, in fact, be um, that that both phenomenologically and neurologically, and that is to say, uh, and sort of in terms of the the, the the correct psychological taxonomy, that maybe the boundaries between them um, are are much less significant than we thought. And you might you might be exactly right. I mean, there's certainly there are now theories that are taken very seriously in the in the world of perceptual neuroscience which suggests that in a way it's a mistake to think that visual cortex the the, the striate cortex the occipital lobe mm. is is actually distinctively visual that mm-hmm. it's that its actual function is a certain kind of um it can be characterized in different ways, but maybe one way to put it would be uh, the processing of information about fine detail um and so that it's not surprising that blind readers of Braille use that part of the brain to do that. Right. Um, and, and there are many examples where, where these very crude applications of sensory function to different parts of the brain may really correspond to metamodal structures that, that aren't so simple. So, so this is really an open field for, for, for thinking and research. I just came back from a meeting uh, in Germany wh- whose topic was um, uh, synesthesia mm-hmm. and sensory substitution and, and thinking precisely about the limits of the mod- modality idea. So let me let me pursue a, diff, uh, a related um, issue that that you mentioned um, uh, the idea of engagement or or as I would like to ask about disengagement um, one of the one of the um, the motivations for the 
whatever representational view you want to take, whether it's, you know, actual pictures in the head or something, or something less um, intellectualized. Um, uh, the um, the motivations for such views, which which as you know do you know continue. I mean, there's still a very strong stream within cognitive science, um, which is looking at what goes on, you know, sort of internally. Um, the reasons for positing these things is because we do do so much of uh, at least a certain amount of cognition um, offline. Um, we can, you know, imagine manipulating tomatoes as well as experience them. Um, so, to so to what extent uh, would it be correct to say that your your argument is that? Um, that access or availability is is a is a kind of a, is a foundational move, um, but that once you uh, once you have learned how to access things, uh, then uh, you are able to go offline with maybe you, I don't know if you want to call them representations or or something um, internal. Uh, that um, that doesn't require you know access, but is is similar to it in in certain ways and dependent upon it. I mean, is, is that is, are, are you making a, a foundationalist claim about the um, about the uh, skill, uh, or uh, are you saying there's just not that much going on inside? Mm-hmm. Maybe um, I'm not yeah. sure that's as clear as I wanted it to be. Yeah, that's a that's a hard question for me. Um, well, l- let me put it in a in a briefer way. How, how do you explain, given your emphasis on access and skill, how do you explain offline um, uh, cognition? Yeah. Um, Well, one of the things that my view commits me to is the recognition that there's if you like that that offline our offline mental life, to use your phrase, couldn't be just like our online mental life. Um, uh, the claim is not is not foundationalist in the sense that I'm arguing that um, we acquire the cognitive machinery we need in interaction with the world, and then we can go ahead and, in a secondary way, apply it offline. Mm-hmm. The claim the claim is that experience in its full blown in its full uh, full-blown sense is really something that happens in a dynamic of, in a temporally extended dynamic of exchange with the world around us. So the world is part of the story and you couldn't do what you're doing to make your contribution to experience in the world's absence just as you couldn't move your feet and legs in exactly the way that you would if you were hiking, but in the absence of the earth, which is guiding your movements. Um, the thought is really that 
what we call experience is constitutively dependent on the world's contribution to the experience. So there, that's just what that's what um, seeing is. That's what experience is. I, I, I argue in in um, varieties of presence that really even thinking um, is needs to be understood that way too. Um, but there, the the structures that one is navigating, and that um, one is one is um, hiking over, so to speak, are of a much more abstract nature. Um, they are sociolinguistic norms and books and other sorts of repositories of information about about things in encyclopedias and Google and the internet and and so on. Um, but that even in thought, what we're doing is we're making contact with things by dint of our abilities and the way in which our abilities are actualized and enabled by, by the surrounding environment. Um, so, so now you might want to call thinking itself offline. And, and if that's the thought, then I guess what I want to say is that, no, even thinking isn't really offline. It sort of looks like it's offline because you're just sitting there right. <laughs> and, you're, and you're at home. Mm-hmm. But I want to say that, that thinking is only made possible, you know, thinking about Aristotle, thinking about um, um, Britney Spears, thinking about um, Angela Merkel, are, are only made possible by our situation in relation to a world around us. I mean, this is an idea that in many ways uh, is the same idea that has been developed by the great externalists about content, Putnam, Kripke, Gareth Evans, and others. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, but I'm, I'm trying to extend that into this whole framework for thinking about, about experience. But, but look, you may say, okay, that's all fine and dandy. Let's say it works for thinking. But sure, there is, there is something which is offline, like imagination, or what about even dreaming? Right. Or anything, any time we think about something to which we, we don't or, or cannot have, have access. Um, well, one of the interesting things... <laughs> This is, this is so complicated. It's so difficult to, to be. I, I'd like to. I, need, I really need to take time to talk about it systematically. Yeah. Um, but to which we don't or, or or can't have access. Well, one reason why we might not have access to something is that it doesn't exist. Um, and uh, traditional approaches to intentionality have sort of viewed it as sort of the hallmark of the intentional objects of right. our mental states that. Um, that um, it's not a requirement on them that they exist. Right. Um, and my the, the view about this that I that I take in in varieties of presence is that we should really say about this that there's a difference between having access to something and merely seeming to have access to it, um, and that it that you know you, you can't have access to what doesn't exist. One of the conditions of access is its existence. Um, and and if I want to analyze presence to thought or presence to mind in terms of access, then I need to bite the bullet and grant that um, we can't think about what doesn't exist. Um, and 
that is the, the, the position I, I'd like to defend. Um, what makes it... I still then owe some sort of an explanation of what it is that makes it seem as if we have access to something when we don't. Um, and the answer is actually, I think, kind of easy. It's, the answer is right there, all around us. Well, you know, in the case of you're think, thinking about somebody who, who doesn't exist, you're, you're, you're just not, you are making use of all those same structural resources available to you, but um, there's nobody at the end of it. And so you can, you're, you're, you know, you're climbing over that web of, of information, um, and you think you're going to find the pot of gold at the end, uh, but you don't. Um, but there's nothing mysterious about that. There's no, it's not as though, how could you possibly have stood in that relationship to this thing that doesn't exist? Well, what you were doing was you were taking for granted the geography that we have and a, you know, a sense of the lay of the land that we all have, and we're sort of making a mistake. And, and somebody might respond to me, but wait a second. No, 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 that, that, that can't be right. The fundamental thing about thinking is that you know, your thought pertains to and is directed to this object, and if it doesn't exist, you know, then you have a false belief. Or, um, uh, but the thing there I want to say is, look, if you're thinking about something that doesn't exist, that is to say, if it seems to you as if you're thinking about something when you're not, I want to say that's a difference that makes a difference in the way what you seem to yourself to be thinking out seems to show up for you. It's a difference that makes a qualitative difference. For example, the example I, I give in the book is, you know, take take thinking about a religious, a religious um, figure, like a, a figure in a biblical story. Yeah, I, I, in fact, I was the example I was thinking of was, uh, you know, thinking about the second coming of Christ or something like that. Well, I, I don't want to use Christ as an example because he's such a uh, he's such a. Uh, well, that's, that's for, fine. Yeah, for, Christ, for Christian believers, yeah, he, he's so central. Right. But um, but think, think, think just a more marginal character um, uh, in in a biblical story. I, I can't even think of a good one. Or even take Jonah. Take, yeah, take, the, the point is that you know maybe there there um, is nobody answering. Maybe it turns out Jonah didn't exist. Right. Uh, uh, I would say that you know finding out that Jonah didn't exist would be radically different in significance than, say, finding out that uh, Barack Obama doesn't exist. <laughs> like, we almost can't even imagine how radically different the world would need to be from the way it is for it to be possible that Barack might not exist. But Jonah, you know, he's so far away in our conceptual sociolinguistic space that finding out that he doesn't, doesn't, would, didn't exist would really be just about, would give us some insight into the quality of the presence he seems to us to have. So, so we, it's very difficult for me to, to state this super clearly because the idea is so complicated. I tried to get it in the book, but it's still a work in progress. But the thought is that the, the reason why the book is called Varieties of Presence is that, is that it's not as though something is present simply all or nothing. There's, there's different ways in which things can be present just as in vision. Something can be really, really far away that you can just make it out. Um, and that's a kind of presence. But it's so different from the presence of, you know, the, the book you're holding in your hand or the person sitting next to you. And um, 
why should we think that our relationship to the thing which is really, really far away is just like our relation to the person sitting next to us? And I want to say the same is true about thought. Things can be so far away uh, that we barely think about them, <laughs> even though we think we do, or, or they can be so far away that we think we, we are thinking about them when we're not. And we should we should allow for that possibility. Um, but but the really hard case for what you're talking about is dreaming. Um, because in dreaming, it seems that you actually have full-blown conscious states that depend not on the world around you, but just on what's going on in your head. And if you can have that, why couldn't why couldn't you have the whole shebang? Yeah. Um, and that to me, that really is the the hardest question, and I I have answers to it. Um, but I'm also sensitive to the fact that um, my answers don't don't settle the question. They don't they don't silence this this objector. Um, and the first the first point I want to make is that. I think we can. What I, what I what I would want to insist on is that the the sort of the Cartesian skeptical words that everything we might be experiencing is a dream um, makes makes a, an assumption, a sort of a a, a, a a substantive, if you like, um, ontological assumption, as to be contrasted with with the, with the epistemological worry about whether we can know which is that any experience that you might have would be something that you could dream that you're having. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's reasons to question that empirically. Um, that is, I think that we, the way, my, my hypothesis is that the way we achieve the world's presence is by um, online access to it. So that if you remove the world, that there's simply going to be a limit to the degree of presence that we can achieve. And I think that, in fact, that is actually borne out by empirical investigations of uh, the content of dreams. Um, So, for example, uh, Stephen LeBerge, in his laboratory where they work with lucid dreamers, has found that in a lucid dream, or in any dream, if, if a dreamer reads a sign of complicated text, and then in the dream looks away and looks back at the sign, mm-hmm. it, ne- it never says the same thing twice. Um, that is, the dream world isn't, isn't anchored in anything except what the dreamer says is there, so to speak, so that it's simply not possible to preserve detail across scenes in a dream. Um, we need the world to do that. Uh, we, we need we need our content to be anchored in the world, and so my 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 first thought is to try to suggest that we need to take seriously the fact that there's certain kinds of content of our of our experiential lives that really depend on the world's contribution and our, and the and then the contribution that is made available thanks to our situation in in relation to the world around us, and that we just can't have that offline. Um, and so then the, the thought would be that if we can't have some stuff offline, it really is going to be just as a kind of um, residual of what we can do online as a sort of a, as a, as a knock-on effect. And then I would make the claim, and it's, this is a strictly empirical claim, right? mm-hmm. I, I could be wrong about this, I would make the claim that 
if a person were, were then to be cut off from the world, that the resources of their mental lives, the things that were still sort of residually available to them uh, in memory and imagination, would, would, would gradually diminish. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, that that was the, actually one of the um, one of the things that I I inferred from from the book. Um, although one of the things that you do say um, that I thought was was rather surprising is is that we we can't have novel experiences. Mm. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate that claim a little bit because that was also somewhat counterintuitive, at least to me. Yeah. Um, the the thought is that um, I mean, in a way, it it kind of goes back to the to a sort of Platonic paradox of the Mino sort of worry that. Um, in order to look for something, you already need to know what you're looking for, and if you already know what you're looking for, then why bother? <laughs> um, and the thought, the thought is that we have, um, is that what enables us to bring the world into focus is, is our ability to um, achieve access, and access depends on skills, um, and anything that was genuinely that genuinely um, outstripped um, uh, our sensory motor or conceptual expectations would in effect be something we couldn't latch onto, couldn't couldn't get a grip on, um, and so it wouldn't show up for us. Um, so, I mean, this is a view that I I sort of came to it when writing action and perception but it came out in an interesting way um, trying to think of exactly how this how this argument got started but I had an interesting exchange with Andy Clark about sort of the turn on, on just this this question um, actually, I'm not sure that's really quite 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 to the point the point is really just what I what I what I've said so far. So I'm, I'm trying to, there's a lot of balls in the air with this one and I'm trying to figure out exactly the best place to begin. Um, but the, the basic, the basic thought is, um, let me give you an example. You know, take, take a case of, of reading. Mm-hmm. Well, when you read, you have this very sophisticated conceptual linguistic, um, ocular motor set of skills that allows you to make sense of any text which is given to you. Um, That is to to say, it lets you treat any text which is given to you as, if you like, something that you understand, something that you know. Um, If you're given a text in a foreign language or in a foreign alphabet, you really can't even see it. It just looks like gibberish or like gobbledygook or, you know, you couldn't even you couldn't copy it. You couldn't really describe it accurately. You can't even really see it. But once you learn the language, all of a sudden it becomes 
easy to see. So it's almost as if the knowledge makes new things old, and in making them old and familiar, it makes them perceptible. Um, and this then raises the interesting question of how do we ever have new experiences? Because obviously we do, and there, there is such a thing as learning. Um, and I think that one place where we see this, where all of us, where each of us can actually have this experience, is in the domain of art. You know, if you go hear some music in a style that's unfamiliar to you, sometimes it's, and then somebody asks you, you know, what was it like? Or, you know, can you hum a, can you hum a melody? Or, um, sometimes it's really hard to say anything at all. It's hard to even perceive it. Um, it just was kind of somehow below the threshold of being recognizably, identifiably something. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as you listen more, as you get familiar with it, as you gain certain expectations about what it's, what it's doing, all of a sudden, when you do that, it becomes um, rock-solid clear, rock-solid perceptible. So the, the, for me, it's this beautiful, it's this beautiful um, tension where we do seem to be able through active engagement with the novel to enable the novel to be experienced. We see this when we get to know styles of art that were previously unfamiliar. But what's remarkable is that this process whereby we find ourselves able to bring the novel into focus are kind of processes whereby we make the novel familiar. And so that when we finally describe what is given to us in perception, it's something that has, you know, it's more like the character of, of an old pair of blue jeans than it is like the character of something genuinely strange and marvelous. We, we've domesticated. In yes, yes. Um, we're, we're running out of time, um, which is unfortunate because um, there were a number of uh, interesting uh, responses you give to, um, you know, to, to discussions by Sean Kelly and uh, 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 Jason Stanley and Timothy Williamson and uh, other other figures that are discussing similar issues. Um, and we're not going to get to that, but um, I do at least want to ask what you are um, working on uh, now, what your, what your next project is. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, the, uh, the new book is, is about art, um, and it's called Strange Tools, uh, and it's really about art and human nature. You know, I ask, what is art? What does art tell us about ourselves? Why does art matter to us so much? Uh, why, why does art matter to us so much? And um, the, uh, the book has a sort of a, uh, a positive dimension and also has a negative dimension. The negative dimension is I'm very skeptical of the current trend which seeks to try to understand um, uh, art in neurological or, or neuroscientific terms. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a very fashionable movement called neuroaesthetics, yes. which tries to use the resources of neuroscience to understand art. Um, on the other hand, I'm very much committed to the idea that we, we ought to try to look at art in relation to our biology. So I'm, I try in the book to positively develop a way of thinking about human biology uh, so that we can make a nice, informative uh, interplay between art and human experience. So, so that's the new book. It's, a, it's still, I think, uh, a little ways off from being finished. Okay. Well, I, I look forward to uh, to reading that book, too. So. Thank you. 
Um, thank you so much, Kay. Yeah, thank you, and uh, good luck. Great, okay. thanks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Alva Noe, professor of philosophy at University of California at Berkeley, about his new book, Varieties of Presence, just out from Harvard University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening. <laughs>